Welcome to the Cumberland River Compact's River Talks podcast. In each episode of River Talks, we explore a new topic related to the health, enjoyment, and protection of the Cumberland River Basin's water, people, and special places. We sit down with experts, artists, researchers, professionals, and more to share their knowledge and experiences. I'm Katherine Price, your River Talks host. Be sure to subscribe to River Talks to be notified of every new episode. And if you have a moment, please rate and review our podcast. Kayaking looks a bit different with elite kayaker Dane Jackson. Dane is a professional kayaker with a deep appreciation for exploring, enjoying, and protecting our waterways. He has won the Freestyle World Championships, the Whitewater Grand Prix three times, and kayaked over the second tallest waterfall ever attempted by a kayaker. His name may sound familiar. He comes from a family of kayakers, including his father, Eric Jackson, who is also a professional kayaker and founder of the local Tennessee company Jackson Kayak. In this River Talk, Dane is joined by Meg Littman, Nashville-based journalist and writer, to discuss kayaking in Tennessee and beyond. Meg is an avid paddleboarder and the founder of Nashville Paddle Company. She is also a former board member of the Cumberland River Compact and former chair of the Dragon Boat Festival. Meg was lucky enough to catch up with Dane during a break from one of his recent kayak trips. He joined us via Wi-Fi from a coffee shop, so just a heads up that his audio has a bit of extra static. Maybe you can start a little bit and give us a quick sort of overview as to to how you got to where you are now with your career. Um, so basically, I traveled the world going kayaking. The way I got into it is um, when I was born, my dad was already a professional kayaker. He went to the 92 Olympics for slalom. He was big into whitewater. And when I came around in 93, he had um, kind of shifted his focus more towards freestyle and won the freestyle world championship that year. And so he was already a pro kayaker by the time I came around. Growing up, I was already surrounded by the river. We, I was born in D.C. We lived there for the first few years of my life, but we actually moved into an RV full time from when I was about four till I was 10. We didn't have a house. We just lived in a, an RV full time. And so basically, we're just going wherever kayaking seemed best and just travel with the family. So growing up, even though initially I wasn't necessarily running the hardest stuff, I was always watching the best kayaking, hanging out around the river, swimming, playing with little kayak, just anything that got me outside as well as uh, just prowling in a boat whenever I got a chance. So did you always, did you always love kayaking or was there a, a point where you felt like you were trying to, to fill his shoes? I guess kayaking never re- was really pushed on me as something that's like, oh, you need to do this so you can be a professional and successful. It was just kind of a way that I could, one, go to all these incredible places with the family, but a way that my dad could take us to these incredible places that he loved to go and kayak with them all the time. Initially, I didn't kayak a lot of the same stuff as my dad. I didn't learn how to roll until I was about eight years old. But before then, I would either paddle in my own boat and somewhere safe without a skirt or maybe sit on my dad's lap or something like that. But even if I wasn't in a boat myself, I was still trying to find a way to be involved around the river, whether even just putting little foam kayaks on the end of a fishing rod, throwing that in the river, like that kind of stuff. Growing up, I did a lot of skateboarding as well because there's a lot of places I could skateboard while my dad was off kayaking. But the second that I even learned how to roll, it was just full-time kayaking at that point, And I just went from there. Why do you think whitewater paddling resonated with you so much? Why do you love it so much? Um, the reason why kayaking just kind of always became my thing is that it, it was never put on me in like a kind of like certain sports. Like if they're in the Olympics, like that's probably the only thing that, that 
in your mind from the second you decide to get into something at least professionally there was never that kind of like oh you have to be looking way beyond it was just kind of a, a way to go to these incredible places um and my dad still pushed me and allowed me to like improve as much as possible but it was never like a, oh man you you have to improve today and the next day it's like he would teach me what i needed he would keep it really fun he would push me when i needed it and he just made it enjoyable to get to do all these incredible things and go to these incredible places and get to do it with my family and then it becoming a career just kind of it just kind of fell into place rather than kind of like forced on me are there things about whitewater paddling that that are particularly interesting to you is it is it being out in parts of the wilderness that you can't otherwise see is it the adrenaline fix what what about it is is compelling to you there's a million reasons why kayaking has always been incredible for me and why i'll continue to do it forever just opportunities i get the places i get to go but a lot of it is definitely the fact that it just gets me outside year-round and gets me to these places that I might not have been able to access or even get to experience if I wasn't a kayaker. There's plenty of places I go that if you can't kayak down the river, you're never going to get to experience the spot. And so getting to go to those places, I mean, that's like that in itself is enough for me. Um, but it's the continuing motivation that I can, anywhere in the world, probably going to have rivers and I just want to go to as many places as possible with some incredible people as well as with my family. How did you make the transition from being someone who paddled with friends and family to, to being someone who does this for a career? Kayaking's definitely not the, the most clear-cut path when it comes to trying to make it a, a full-time job or, or a career out of it. Um, we are a very small, fairly niche sport, and that has its ups and downs. So it becomes a little tricky to make it a, a full-time thing. You just have to basically just commit to it, even if it's just spending all your money to be able to go on a trip and then goal is to be able to sell photos afterwards that's the kind of stuff you have to do the transition was fairly early on because my dad made those opportunities possible whether um whenever he would talk to a brand he would try to involve either me and my sister or myself when it comes to gear or paddles from the beginning my dad when right when i started to get better at kayaking design um started jack and kayak and made the first kids boat the fun one and were designing boats for myself and my sister when we were small, which allowed me to progress a lot faster than if I had to paddle bigger boats. And so it's always kind of been a career because it's always been like everything's been set up in a way that's allowed me to learn anything I need to learn. It was never stressful. I was just learning new things. But as I got older, the way it kind of transitioned into a career for me is I was one fortunate enough to start getting sponsors that could support me to go kayaking. But I also, because I was getting to go to these incredible places and my parents also bought me the stuff I needed to shoot photos and videos, whether video cameras, and they gave me like a computer when I was 13, which is, I don't know who does that. But through that, I was able to start learning editing and stuff like that. So now as I am older, all that time I spent just having fun filming with the camera. Now that's a huge part of me being able to support myself when it comes to not only traveling, but being a good representative for a brand, because all they have to do is support me to get somewhere and I'm going to be able to shoot photos, videos, I travel people that do the same thing. I make my own edits, do my own YouTube, my own social. It's basically a one-stop shop for everything. And that's kind of how it has to be with kayaking, you know, because you can't get to these places unless a lot of the time, unless you're a kayaker. So we do a lot of our own content creation and stuff like that. So for me, I could just simply go kayaking, but I also try to make sure that I show kayaking the best way, whether it's editing and photos and all that fun stuff. 
I know it must be hard to pick, but can you tell me about one favorite place you've gotten to go through kayaking? I mean, it's hard to hard to pick favorites, like you said. I mean, it all comes down to what I'm in the mood for. It's everywhere special in their own way. Everywhere has its own kind of white water. It's, it's hard to say because, you know, I've, I've incredible places all over the world. Like one of my favorite rivers is Zambezi River below Victoria Falls. Just one of those places that, you know, incredible to see. And it's just so much fun, warm water, just go spend a few weeks, a month, whatever it is, and then never get bored. If I want to go fall off waterfalls, I can go to somewhere like Tlapacoran in Mexico. The Nile River used to be like one of my favorite places to go. It just depends on what I'm in the mood for. Just It's hard to pick favorites. I mean, there's Chile, been to Indonesia, India, everywhere special. Everywhere's got its own thing, and it just kind of depends on what I'm looking to do, whether it's big waterfall, big water, freestyle. Everywhere's kind of got its thing. When you're traveling, do you see differences in the way different places protect and conserve their water and their waterways? You can definitely see a vast difference in the way locals and certain people treat the rivers when you, a lot of places where you go. I mean, everywhere has some people that are trying to do their best and some people that don't necessarily take care of the river. Like everywhere has a bit of both. It's not like one place is like, no, forget the river and another place is like, oh, we want to protect it. But there's generally a difference. It kind of just depends on the locations or the way the river is presented to people in the local areas. For some people, some places it's like, oh, this is just a place to discard trash. And then in other places, people see it as this incredible thing that needs to be protected. So there's definitely, everywhere's kind of got a different level of how they try to conserve it or the way they treat the river, which is always hard to see because everywhere should just be fairly unanimous in the sense of just, we need to keep it clean and keep it protected. Um, but it also comes down to a lot of that when it comes to dams as well, like some very rarely is the, are the locals the ones that want something like a dam. It's always an outside source that's putting a dam in a place that just has no reason to have a dam there. So yeah, it's, it's, there's definitely, you see a huge difference in a lot of the places. But as I go and I try to show these incredible places, I try to also, you know, um, I've done a few river cleanups and if there is trash somewhere that it, I try to do my part a little bit, but in the end, I also just try to show these rivers and how pretty they are so that way people maybe look at them a little different rather than somewhere to send the trash or dirty water whatever it is into do you ever get any feedback from that have you heard from anyone who who talks about going somewhere or being able to start some sort of conservation project based on on your your video and your photos not necessarily like directly i generally don't unless it's like very prominent i try not to just immediately throw the, the like the content all oh, these rivers are destroyed in people's faces unless I'm able to like be like all right there's a lot of trash but maybe it's a cleanup and I show it but if there's an opportunity to show that in a way that it's not just like if it's very aggressive I try to show it but I haven't necessarily had someone directly reach out like oh that river looks gnarly let's go clean it up but there's people especially the local paddlers that often will organize stuff like that in their area Tell us your craziest paddling story, your craziest adventure. I mean, that's, uh, that's a, a tough one. I would need like a week to really pick that out. <laughs> um, it's uh, everywhere, everything kind of had its own thing. I've, I, like I said earlier, it's really hard to just be like, oh, this is the craziest one. This spring, I did manage to go to Chile and run the, the Santo Male waterfall in the uh, Male region, which is a drop that I've seen photos of for about four years that I've always kind of wanted to check out, but it always been told that like, no, nah, it's probably not good. But then this year I decided to finally go check it out and ended up running it, which was, and it ended up actually being the second tallest drop anyone's run. 
I managed to have a good line, stayed in my kayak coming out, but then I did have to swim out of my boat afterward because the skirt to keep the water out had come off. So it wasn't 100% perfect, but to get to run that waterfall and get that view in one of the coolest places ever was a um, pretty incredible thing. But I mean, and then two days later, I ran another waterfall, 100-footer that I've wanted to run for years. So, I mean, not necessarily a crazy story, but that was just something I got to do recently, and that was awesome. And then, like, pretty sure the next week I went and surfed in between two yachts. So, I mean, there's, there's been some crazy things. that I really can't, like, everything – it's not like, oh, man, I had this one thing happen. There's, like, a million things that have happened. It's hard to even, like, hone in on one. It's a lot of crazy things that have happened and a lot of cool experiences. With COVID restrictions, I assume you've <clears throat> had to limit your travel this year? Yep. So when did you stop traveling? I pretty much stopped traveling from COVID, like pretty much immediately. I was supposed, I was in Indonesia for about a month from February to March, and I was actually supposed to stay for like another month. And we ended up leaving early, not necessarily because of COVID, but because things just weren't lining up like we had hoped. So we left early. I got home at the start of like literally the first few days of March. And I was right when COVID hit hard. Or basically, my family and I decided we all live on a ranch in Tennessee. And normally that's the time of the year that I would basically get in my RV, go to New York, West Coast, whatever it was, Eastern Canada, all over, basically start an eight-month tour in my RV. We pretty much right away decided that we all shouldn't, I wish to do our part and just stay home on the ranch. Like we literally agreed, like, we're not going out, we're just eating in, we're going to the grocery store once every two weeks, and we're going to wipe down the stuff. Like we went full lockdown for a couple months, really. Like we didn't actually, I didn't end up seeing anyone other than my family for about four months. But that was just what we decided to do. But the biggest thing was that I didn't feel comfortable with the idea of traveling like West Coast or going other places. It just didn't feel right to freely travel yet. Even now, I am like in my RV, but I'm still trying to be cautious who I meet up with the kayak. I'm still obviously wearing a mask. I'm being very cautious going where I go. So I'm still not traveling hardcore going all the best places, but I am a little more on the road again, just still trying to be cautious. During that time or, or during this time, are there any places in Tennessee that you've revisited or did you gain any additional appreciation of places that are in our community in Tennessee? I mean, definitely now when I said I was stuck at home, it's a very loose term, but we're actually only about a mile away from uh, a super fun kayaking spot, uh, Rock Island State Park, which actually ran a lot over the summer. So, I mean, I was still kayaking plenty. Like I wasn't when I say I was stuck, there are people that had it much worse. But yeah, I didn't necessarily get to explore much because if I was going to leave, once I left Tennessee to come kayaking, show off the new boat in my RV, it was in the sense that I knew I'd be in my RV for a few weeks and, and basically stay out. Whereas in Tennessee, I just didn't feel comfortable doing these day trips and then potentially coming back to the house and, and bringing something back. So I, uh, I didn't get to necessarily explore Tennessee, but I definitely appreciated where I was able to to be and, and spend the time because a lot of places might not have had water for the time that we had or or it just wouldn't be warm or whatever it is. I was definitely fortunate where we got to stay. Uh, what do you think makes Rock Island and, and Middle Tennessee <clears throat> special? As someone that just likes going outside and, and kayaking is just a bonus part, but really it's just one of the more beautiful places you can go and there's unlimited potential for what you want to do, whether it's climbing in Chattanooga or if you want to have a, in the future, obviously, have a really fun night, fun experience in a city. You go to Nashville, is a lot of fun. I love going down there when I get the chance. Or you want to go see some big waterfall in some of the most pretty locations. I mean, Tennessee has them all over the place. Like, everyone always thinks that Tennessee is, is flat and rolling hills, and we do have that. But 
people are always pretty surprised whenever they see big waterfalls are actually in Tennessee and obviously whether it's Fall Creek Falls or wherever you go there's waterfalls everywhere in Tennessee and, and that's the fun part about being a kayaker in Tennessee too I didn't I didn't do any big waterfalls over the summer like one or two times we got some pretty big rains that mainly in the spring that I didn't end up going to look for any waterfalls because I, I didn't feel comfortable with the idea of potentially getting hurt and having to go to the hospital by running something really big. So I, I didn't chase any waterfalls in the summer, but there's waterfalls all over Tennessee. And as a kayaker, that's always really exciting. So, yeah, Tennessee, it's got it all. It's, just, it's a lot different than I think people imagine when they think of the south or at least the Tennessee area. And it's just got everything you can think of, and it's an incredible place. You're obviously someone who, who cares about the wilderness and, and the outdoors, how do you balance your interest in travel and the demands of travel with sort of a, a desire to reduce carbon footprint and, and be a good steward of the land? That's a tough thing because obviously I'm someone that doesn't want to see rivers dammed and, and rivers destroyed, whether it's trash and I want to conserve and I want to show these incredible places. But unfortunately to get to these incredible places and show it and maybe teach people to kayak, whatever it is, getting to these places, unfortunately, does require a lot of driving and a lot of flying. Unfortunately, I wouldn't consider myself a steward or someone that's going to be at the highest regard when it comes to that. But when I get there, I make sure that I'm not the one dumping trash on the side of the road, dumping trash in the wilderness, picking up trash if it's like in a very, like that trash doesn't need to be here, that kind of side of things. So I would say, unfortunately, getting there, I'm not the strongest representative, I would say, because I do travel a lot. But once I'm there, I try to do the best I can. So how do you determine in a non-COVID world when you can, we all can travel where we want, how do you determine where you're going when? Depends on um, what I'm into, like what I'm looking to do at that time. And so what we'll usually do is we'll just kind of think about where we want to go in a season and then try and, and then go there. And it basically just kind of comes down to what we're in the mood for, what we're looking to do. Um, winter time is usually a great time to either travel somewhere to go fall off waterfalls or go somewhere like the Zambezi because you can escape the cold and it's nice and hot in Africa. And when we go to those trips, we'll then discuss where we want to go next. And then into the spring, usually about February on, we'll actually get in my truck and my trailer and travel basically almost all summer into the fall, going to wherever seems best. And there are um, about a a month of month and a half of competitions in Colorado and Oregon and Idaho, basically from May and June. And then after that, you then decide after doing competitions for a while, where do we want to go next? And that can be spending the summer on, on the Ottawa River in eastern Canada, going to Norway, Iceland, like everything has its season. And it's usually like wintertime, traveling waterfalls, warm water, spring, looking for more great stuff around North America. And then summer, we usually go back to international. And then kind of also comes down to what like if you do a month of falling off waterfalls you're like okay i want to relax a little bit and, and then go run some more joy kayaking or freestyle or something like that so it's about finding the balance but also trying to decide where we want to explore next and where it seems best at the time of the year so how how are you looking at weather and water levels what sorts of data count especially in uh, north america a lot of rivers have um, gauges and you can have a, a general sense of when something's going to be in based on just the kind of the time of the year. If you spend, you know, a month in Tennessee in the springtime, at some point you're probably going to get a big rain. You'll be able to run some of the more popular local runs and obviously the dam controlled runs. But when it comes to places like Chile or Africa or, or certain areas, they generally have, it can vary kind of year to year, but they generally have a, a 
good sense of when water levels are at, depending on the time of the year. So like Chile, generally snow melt. And so you know that if you go at this time of the year, the most of the snow is gone. Some of the rivers are going to be getting lower, but that might bring in some other rivers. Or in Mexico, like the rainiest time of the year is usually like October, November. And that's if you want high water and the chance to run maybe some waterfalls that require rain, you would go then. Zambezi, uh, usually at its lowest over, over December. So if you want the lowest water for certain features, you go then. Um, so it's kind of just a matter of... Uh, of looking into the when the rainiest times of the year are, if that's the kind of thing you need, if it's rain-fed rivers, or if it's certain rivers that are snow melt, you look for generally the summer, like Norway, Iceland, that kind of thing. Summer is usually when you go there because that's when the, the rivers are kind of melting and, and the levels are coming in good. Sometimes it's the bus, sometimes you get rain, sometimes you don't, but you generally look up previous data and find out exactly when the, either the rainiest or the warmest months are, that kind of thing. Thanks to the supporters of the Cumberland River Compact who helped bring our podcast to listeners. We would also like to thank the Nashville Predators Foundation. The Preds and the Compact have more than just a love of catfish in common. The Nashville Predators Foundation are longtime supporters of our youth education programs. Thank you to the Predators Foundation for their continued support. Can you tell us about the biggest mistake you've made on the water? I've been uh, pretty fortunate to to not have at least mistakes turn into to something worse. I, uh, I try to make smart decisions when I can and 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 do be a smart person on the water. It's hard to picture a mistake because a mistake is usually like when you do something that's just like, okay, that was dumb. Now I've had bad lines off of running something that I thought I was going to have a good line. And that can happen, but usually to kind of learn from that and try to apply accordingly moving forward. But the biggest mistake I probably made in kayaking that was just completely unnecessary was that I, uh, there's a wave in downtown Ottawa called the Ruins Wave. And it's basically a ruins of a, a, it was either a bridge, I forget what it was, but it's like these big square blocks in a massive river. The Ottawa River is like miles wide. There's this wave that's in between the ruins and you just, you put it in high enough, you just paddle out to them, you get the paddle in the wave. But if you wash downstream you have to then walk up a little ways and then go back to where the ruins are it's a really wide river and the current's really fast i for some reason just got lazy and put in a little too low and i went to ferry out to where the wave is but i ended up realizing that i wasn't actually going to make it and all that water is going like we're talking like hundreds of thousands tfs going uh directly into these ruins i ended up surfing a wave in front of the ruins and almost got pulled in but managed to make it around and if I had gone into those rooms, I definitely would have died. It was just one of those things where I was like 18 or 19. It was just like, I almost just died because I got too lazy to walk up a little little farther. So that was definitely one of those mistakes. That, one of those few times where I was, <laughs> one of the only times I was like, yep, almost just died. But that was, uh, um, that was just was completely unnecessary. So that was a good learning experience. Like, okay, maybe pay attention a little more next time. How do you teach people like that when you're teaching kayaking? How do you teach people to make those smart decisions? There's a lot of things to learn, whether it's just trying to train and compete in the biggest competitions or running the biggest waterfalls, running the hardest whitewater. The carnage or getting hurt or people making bad choices um, generally comes down to not actually deciding whether or not you're ready to run something or whether or not you really actually want to run something. A lot of times people run something just for the, the stigma or the um, satisfaction of being able to say, hey, I ran this rapid. 
especially at a younger age, because then you can be like, oh, I'm 16. I've already run this epic rapid that everyone knows about. It's really hard not to not to kind of buy into that or, or have that motivation. And sometimes I was guilty of it too. But luckily, I had a lot of people that were just like, no, there's, there's, you can't run this or really think about it if you want to run it. And sometimes I wouldn't run it. And looking back, I'm grateful I had people like that to really put me in my place when I needed it. And so for me, I always decided to like, let make sure people like, okay, do you actually want to run this? If rapid probably isn't going anywhere for a while, just make sure you're like, it only takes one bad mistake to either have something go really wrong or have a career of injury that might bother you for the rest of your life or like always run it just because you actually want to run it, not because of the pressure of what the rapid is or how cool it'd be to be able to say you ran it, as well as just making sure you're doing actually enjoying your time on the water because that will affect everything that around big waterfalls, creaking, the world championships and freestyles. A lot of people, they just don't look like they're enjoying themselves. I'm like, well, if you're not, if you only care about the end result, then you're not really going to enjoy the whole process, especially if you don't end up winning. So enjoying yourself on the water, no matter what it is, is definitely the best thing I find that really helps me, whether it's from going to competitions, running big waterfalls, that make the whole experience enjoyable. So that way if things don't go quite as planned, I still enjoy everything around it and I still learn to move forward to the next thing. How do you incorporate that mindfulness and that, intent of joy in your everyday work i guess in the end it's just uh by making sure i'm enjoying whatever i'm doing it's either something i'm enjoying or something that allowed me to get to where i like editing videos that is a huge part of being able to support brands and therefore support myself to get to where i need to go and every chance i get to edit i enjoy it because i'm learning something new i'm becoming a better editor i'm doing that kind of thing or if it's uh, cross-country drives, you know, people hate cross-country drives. I do about five or six a year. I enjoy them because it's just like, you know, I'm in the car, listening to music, books, whatever it is. And that allows me to get to somewhere there is an end result and I'm going to get to go kayaking on the other side. So I guess just enjoying every aspect and not just the good times, enjoying the waiting for rain because it's going to be that good when the rain comes or something like that. A lot of people only focus on, it's only fun if it goes exactly as planned. And then they're really negative if it's ever not going as planned. Or I just try to find ways to enjoy it, the whole aspect. So that way, when it goes great, it's just that much better. And if it doesn't go quite as planned, you're like, all right, that's fine. Let's move on to the next thing. How did you learn the video, videoing and video editing and the, the outdoor photography? How did you learn those things? Just basically just sucking at it and trying to do it more. Um, <laughs> By the time I really found a way to really apply it as a, a way to support myself, especially now, like I, selling photos or being able to tell a brand that I can go, if you just get me to where I need to go, I can take care of the rest, more social media, all of that. It came from basically just making these terrible little edits, just having fun trying it. And as well as uh, my brother-in-law, Nick, he also did a lot of video editing and made movies. So he would, I would either watch him or he would show me something, but it was just kind of this fun little thing that I just did and messed around with and just wanted to make edits and then as growing up as I continued to make more I was just able to learn a lot of really useful things that that it still was just kind of this fun thing to do it wasn't like I was hired to edit it was just something that I enjoyed to do and then now I basically just make a lot of content and because I learned all those skills growing up and I continue to learn. Do you have do you have recommendations for people who are outdoors a lot who want to improve their outdoor photography and outdoor video? I definitely get questions like that a bit. And I'm always just like, I'm still pretty far from being the kind of person, you know, can have a, a podcast or YouTube channel talking about how to edit. But I would say the, the most important thing is definitely 
and it will help your bank account too. Definitely don't get too caught up in the, uh, oh, you need to buy this to be able to get this kind of um, stuff, whether it's buying expensive cameras, expensive lenses. A lot of it can come down to just technique. You can have the most expensive equipment in the world and you can still suck at it. There's still plenty to learn. I mean, a lot of people, and I'm guilty of it too, it's a, a, at times it's hard not to want to just buy the better and better equipment but there's still a lot to learn. Best way to do it, I find, is buy the cheapest version of what you think you want to buy. Like, it, like if you want a wide-angle lens, only buy a $100 wide-angle lens, shoot with it, see how much you actually use it, and then once you realize what kind of lenses you like to use, then you can buy the nice version. Whereas a lot of people will buy an expensive camera and they'll buy, especially a new camera, they're going to buy all the expensive lenses, and then you don't actually know what you want to shoot with or what was worth it. So I would say like, for me, I bought like a hundred dollar wide angle. I realized I used it almost every day. So I went ahead and bought a really expensive one because I knew I would use it a lot. So that kind of thing is that don't get too caught up in buying the most expensive stuff, learn your technique, learn what you like to do. And then from there improve and buy the right equipment simply based on what you know you're going to use rather than the, what you might use. Is that true uh, with kayaking equipment too? Do you have the same kind of advice about what to buy? and when to level up? Yes and no. Kayaking, the, the thing about kayaking is that you can probably, some people can have buy one kayak and be happy with it for 15 years, you know? It just depends on what kind of kayaking you're doing. Yeah, it's kind of got the similar thing, I guess. Like, you don't necessarily need to buy a $1,500 kayak, of the nicest, most advanced, the freestyle kayak, if you're just learning how to roll. Like, you got there's other things to learn first. Um, but with kayaking, you can generally... I feel like one size fits all a little more with kayaking just because, you know, you can buy a, a, a creek boat, like running harder whitewater, waterfalls and stuff like that. As long as it's easy to paddle, you learn how to roll in that. You can run your first river in that. But then as you get better, it's still something that you'll continue to use. So I guess yes and no, but there's buy cheap freestyle kayak, like a hundred dollar or $500 freestyle kayak. If there's a great huge one, that's only a few years old. And if you realize you like freestyle a lot and you're progressing in it quickly, then you can buy the latest one. But in the end, I would say kayaking is a little bit more like, you can buy the nicest boat and you're probably still gonna use it a lot regardless. When you're traveling cross country in your RV, how many how many boats do you have with you? Uh, depends on the year, depends on uh, how many people I got with me. But uh, I mean, when I had a Sprinter van, I had a full roof rack on the top and a kayak trailer. I was usually lugging around probably at least 20 boats. I usually have about probably 10, 10 boats to myself. Um, and especially like if I was to get in my RV right now, travel for six months, like we just came out with a new boat called the Antics. I'm going to have three sizes of that. I've got a race boat. I've got a lightweight race boat. I've got long boat. Like I generally have around 15 to 20 boats with me. When, once I have my friend traveling with me, it's a lot of stuff and a lot of paddles, a lot of gear. Um, with the truck, I have to be a little more picky because there's not as much room with the truck and the trailer to load as many boats. But at the same time, it's still a lot of kayak. Where in Tennessee do you recommend if people are inspired by your story and interested in getting out and learning more, where are some of the places in Tennessee that you recommend they start to go out to learn? There's a few options, but the the best place, is, there's a lot of people around the Ocoee that, that do a lot of classes there from the, Ocoee is great because the Ocoee, not only is it warm, especially in the summer, and it runs, I think, almost every weekend throughout the summer, few people that work there that basically I think live there year round that teach a lot of kayaking they're really good at it but also with the water being warm and you can learn at the bottom of the river the flat water you can learn how to roll you can learn the basics there and then as you progress there's a few other rivers you can run in surrounding states but then at 
one point when you're ready to run the Akoe, the Akoe is one of the best rivers. That's not the most challenging as long as you have some of the basics down. So the Akoe is a really good spot to kind of get the, the, whole, um, the whole process down. And when people are thinking about getting outdoors and getting into paddling, how can we encourage them better to also advocate for clean water and water access points? Respecting the river and respecting the fact that we get to get on these rivers is uh, about as simple as it gets. And it only takes one person throwing trash at the put-in or the trail or in the river for then the next person that might not know any better to say, well, if that person did it, then throw the trash in. It, it only takes that one person to kind of set that effect in motion to the point that there's tons of trash in a river. So to respect the river, whatever trash you bring in, take out. You see some unnecessary trash, pick it up. That way the next person will, will see that and be more likely to act on that as well. And also just don't destroy the wilderness. Just be, be respectful of the land that we get to access, the rivers we get to access, the parking lots, everything together. As long as we're treating it well, people want to continue to have them open and allow us to access these incredible places. As soon as people start destroying parking lots, destroying trails, throwing trash on people's property, then people start not wanting us to have access to get to these incredible places. What are some of the common questions that you get from folks about kayaking at the level that you do it? There's always interesting questions out there, but the, the always surprising one, well, I wouldn't say it's more of a question, but it's more of a, uh, a negative outlook on what we do. And that is uh, people are constantly saying you, that we're idiots and daredevils and, and that we're putting the, the first responders' lives at risk and we should be ashamed of ourselves. Or, and stuff like that, if, um, mostly on big waterfalls. That's not necessarily all the kayaking, but mainly on something like big waterfalls. Like whenever a clip goes viral or people generally see us do something like a big waterfall, they generally assume that, because kayaking is a fairly broad term. Like everyone knows kayaking, but then when they see it off of a big waterfall, they're always like, oh, we're just idiots on an inner tube or something like that. And they're usually like, oh man, imagine the first responder that would die to have to save you. It's like, well, actually like a lot, a lot went into making the choice to run a waterfall, whether it's we scouted for a long time, scouted without water, not only built the skills to run the waterfall properly, of course there's risk, but we also have safety, whether people were pelled in on a rope, kayakers below, kayakers with ropes on the sides of the river. Like there's a lot that goes into that one moment that people see and they usually think that we're the idiots that run it just for the hell of it, but we actually do a lot that goes into that moment. So almost like a stunt in a movie or kind of like when you see a, a surfer surfing Nadere or something, when I see it, I, I trust that I'm like, that, there are people that probably aren't ready to surf Nadre that maybe go out there. But most people I see out there, I assume they, you know, they not only feel they have the skill, but they probably have made a safety plan. And a lot of people say see that with surfing. But with kayaking, people don't generally give us that benefit of the doubt. They usually think we're just idiots. So that's one thing I definitely want to bring more awareness to is really giving people the opportunity to see how much actually goes into that moment that they see. And we actually, we always know that there's risk, but we do a lot to kind of counteract that. That's super important. What sorts of things do you do to physically prepare and stay in shape to be able to do what you do? Really just go kayaking. That's fun. That's the best way to build the, the right muscles and keep the, the body limber to do big stuff. Kayaking, once you start to get tired and really just continuing to kayak and still throwing moves and not only kayaking like 30 minutes a day, like actually like you start getting tired an hour and a half, do a half hour more of just to throwing tricks, more moves. It's paddling when you're tired, I find it when you start to not only improve, but also build the muscles in the right spot. Because if you only kayak and you're full of energy, it becomes pretty easy. So I'd say just kayaking a lot if you want to build the right muscles is the way to go. But mainly if you do anything like the gym to really focus on keeping your shoulders strong 
and just really making sure that when your shoulders are, are strong and tight that you're not going to dislocate them because the dislocated shoulder is generally the, the one thing that not only will take people out of the water and it's a very common injury, but it's something that can also be very tricky to come back from and have it be 100%. Keeping your shoulders strong is something that you'll definitely want to focus on, whether it's push-ups, pull-ups, dips, that kind of stuff. And uh, when you're on the water, backstroke, that kind of thing, definitely keeping your shoulders strong is the highest recommendation I have. When you're on the water, it seems like it must take an incredible amount of focus. Watch your line and watch where you're going. How, how did you develop that? There's definitely a lot of things that come together in kayaking, especially with harder white water. But most of the time, a lot of it just comes from the skills that especially myself developed growing up. Or, or And every time I'm on the water, I'm learning. Um, there's always a way to improve, always a way to get better. So for me, like running hard white water and, and noticing features or knowing how to react or, or being able to get up to almost every rapid these days and, or drop and feel like I can run it. Whether or not I run it, I decide after, but I generally will take a minute and look and, and make the decision because it's very rarely that I get to a rapid or a drop and not feel like I have the skill to do it. But I think the, the reason why I've gotten to where I'm at is because I never, I never settled where I was. Like if I... In the end, I could have probably settled on where I was four years ago, three years ago, and been fairly happy with it. But instead, I've always just kind of tried to see if I can get better, whether it's racing, freestyle, waterfalls, whatever it is. And through that, I continue to improve and continue to get better. And therefore, it keeps kayaking not only exciting, but I treat every day like an opportunity to improve, whether it's the easiest whitewater or the hardest whitewater. And I think that not only keeps me motivated, is why I'm able to get to the level I'm at. You've talked a, a little bit today about how much you learned from your family and obviously the time that you get to spend together and kayak together. Were there any disadvantages of having that famous name and that name that everyone knows in kayaking? Did you feel like those were big shoes to fill? By the time there was even the slightest inkling of a downside, I mean, all the benefits were pretty up there, but it was only hard for a little while in the sense of... Uh, not necessarily in a bad way, but just, you know, I had to make a name for myself. Uh, coming out of someone like my dad's shadow, it's not like, not an easy feat. And luckily I was able to do that, start doing that fairly early on. And then as I got older, it became a little bit more like we both have had our own careers and now I've got my own name in kayaking. But it was never like a, a bad thing. It was always just kind of, you know, everywhere we went, people would talk to us and get the, plenty of people always to kayak with. It was just fun having a family in kayaking, always someone to kayak with and travel with 24-7. So it's um, never never any downside like people would generally find that when you're the son of someone like my dad it's very hard to to make a name for yourself but luckily he got me into it early enough and I kind of just enjoyed it from the get-go so it never really felt like a, a something I was pursuing and even these days we just both kind of have our own careers uh like a different kind of style of career and pursue a lot of similar things but I've never really had that issue of, of dealing with the negatives of a family name uh, is there a particular piece of advice either your dad or, or Emily gave you early on that sticks with you? Every day is, is new advice and, you know, great advice, whether it's from my sister or my dad or my mom or whoever it is. When I started to run harder stuff, my dad definitely, uh, I think it was like after, I don't know what it was, I found a couple of big things or maybe a friend pathway or something, but he uh, he said that no one's going to remember necessarily remember that you did that one drop or something um or the one wrap or whatever it was i feel like i remember that just because it is very easy to feel like for yourself like i mentioned earlier like people want to be able to say they ran something or did something it's very easy to be like well if i run this run it 
run up hundred this big waterfall, this big rapid. People will remember that forever. They'll be like, yeah, that dude ran it. But it's very true. Even if you win an event, people generally will forget, not forget, but most people aren't going around saying, you know, that this person won this <laughs> or ran that. That only lasts about a month or so. So it's important to be thinking past that and what you're going to be doing after that moment. And that's always kind of stuck with me because I definitely – uh, not only do I notice that a lot, like I, and that's a mistake a lot of people make, especially when it comes to something like a freestyle world championship, a lot of, especially kids like the junior class, they expect that once they win, their life will change forever and they'll never have to pay for anything. Brands are going to be flocking to them, but it's, it's very short lived glory. Even uh, if you win something like the men's class, which is fine. And that's totally like, I have no issues with that, but it's important to remember that because you got to make sure you're doing it for the right reasons. And for me, like I just love the opportunity to compete, and if I win, great, it's awesome, and I love that when that happens. And if I don't, I've enjoyed myself, and I just continue to kayak after. So, not pretending like something you do will last for 20 years, and everyone's going to be able to quote that they're like, "Oh, you, that person did that." It's important to to not only do it for those reasons, because that kind of stuff is much shorter lived than you think. So, you got to make sure you stay motivated, and that's an important way to do it. What's your next professional goal? Uh, really just be able to keep kayaking, uh, keep the, keep the bar low. So it's easy. Um, now I just want to <laughs> kind of keep doing what I'm doing. I, uh, I love having the, the full combo of, you know, just still continue to try to win something like a free, freestyle world championship, but also still want to, you know, try to get the first sub four at the green race, um, continue winning other events, but also, um, continue to explore and run bigger waterfalls, run new rivers, that kind of thing. So it's, for me, it's just to continue to be able to improve on the water, but continue to hone my skills with, shooting videos, making edits, getting to go to these incredible places and um, just keep representing my sport. When travel restrictions are lifted, is there somewhere in particular you plan to go first? Uh, depends on when those restrictions come off. Kind of depends on that a little bit, uh, the time of the year. But I don't know. I'm trying not to plan ahead right now just because for obvious reasons, just trying to like just kind of be happy where I'm at and, and not get my hopes up too high or, or plan too far ahead. But the restrictions come off this winter. I definitely think the first, I definitely want to go back to either Hawaii or Zambezi or somewhere where I can kind of sit in one spot and not have to travel a lot inside the country. But next year, I'm definitely hoping to get back more on what I want to do this year, like going to New York, going to hopefully Iceland and Norway, places like that. It just depends on what, what things look like in the future, I guess, or the time of the year that we're able to start traveling again. Because even when restrictions lift, it doesn't mean that we're, you know, out of the, out of the bush. We're still a long way away from, being 100% back to freely traveling or someone like myself that's trying to be smart, there's still going to be a long time till I'm at the point that I feel like I can just freely do whatever I want, wherever I go. We're still a long ways away from that. So I'm just trying to take uh, each opportunity I get right now as a, as a win. Great. Well, we always ask everyone to give us one thing that they recommend. It can be a book, a habit, a skill. So what, what would you recommend to listeners? I'm a big movie person. I've, I watch a lot of movies. I guess the one piece of advice, because something I noticed the other day when I was talking, my brother-in-law and I have a very different idea of what movies to watch and what we enjoy and stuff. If you're into anything like photography or videography, try to look at movies more than just like, oh, just I'll watch two hours of this. Because once you start to really pay attention to a lot of things or learn a lot about movies, that really, I find that really helps me. There's a lot of cool things to notice. You start to appreciate movies in a much different way, especially when it comes to like, fun facts how they're made but I also I find it's not like I'm doing movie quality stuff yet but I find I'm able to think oh I see what they did there and maybe I'll be able to apply it to myself later in edits or videos or or understand why this movie was good this one wasn't so I uh 
if you just like watching movies to don't out, that's great. But I definitely find that watching them more to appreciate whether it's directing, shots, behind the scenes, all of that. I find it's really fun to kind of learn all that fun stuff. Yeah, everyone's like, all right, I'm going to the movies now. Yeah, I'm, going to, I'm trying to make people feel better about watching a lot of Netflix, you know? <laughs> Excellent. Um, is there something in particular that you watched recently that you thought was particularly well done or an interesting take on things? Oh, Jojo Rabbit. Jojo Rabbit might be one of the most mind-blowing movies I think I've watched in a really long time. If I had to pick, either either watch Jordan Peele's two movies or Jojo Rabbit. But it, regardless of what you're into, Jojo Rabbit might be like one of the best movies in a long time in the last decade. I, I thought it was epic. Thank you to Dane Jackson for joining Meg Littman in conversation about recreation and his impressive career. You may not be ready to follow Dane over waterfalls, but when it comes to paddling in Tennessee, there is something out there for everyone. The Cumberland River Basin is home to over 450 public access points for you to get out on the water. Visit our website at cumberlandrivercompact.org explore to find an access point near you. Want to add your thoughts about this week's episode? Send us an email at rivertalks at cumberlandrivercompact.org or leave us a voice message at 615-933-8837. Until next time, I'm Katherine Price and hope you can join us for more River Talks.